For those of you who've experienced trauma of any kind, this might be a particularly triggering episode for you to listen to. So take care, consider the things that you need to do before you listen to this to keep yourself safe, and remember that you don't have to listen to this and you don't have to continue listening to this. If you have trauma, it may be useful for you to listen to this episode with somebody who knows about your story so that if anything gets stirred up, that you have a safe place to talk about it. Most people who listen to the Liturgist podcast are people who are interested in spiritual conversation, but maybe not fully at home in the religious contexts that they come from. For some, this is simply because they've outgrown the small-mindedness of their tribe. There's this poem by the Sufi mystic Hafiz that one of the lines it says, The great religions are the ships, poets the lifeboats. Every sane person I know has jumped overboard. (laughs) I think that's very funny. But there's also people who have jumped ship in some way or another, not simply because of growth in hope, faith, or love, but simply out of the need to survive. Let's face it, the most beautiful and awful human endeavors are often done in the name of God. In the name of God, countless hungry people have been fed. The poor have been clothed. The hopeless have been comforted. But also, in the name of God, blood has been shed. The poor have been taken advantage of. In the name of God, oppression, racism, patriarchy, and every kind of abuse imaginable has thrived. And a lot of us are people who have experienced both sides of this blade. Many of us have found comfort in our faith, but also despair. We found both shelter and a storm. The evil perpetuated in the name of God is often the darkest sort of evil because the most perverse things are always a perversion of the most beautiful. One of the most disturbing stories I've ever heard was of this father who would molest his daughter at night while singing worship songs. While many of our stories probably don't sound as extreme as this, spiritual trauma or abuse on any level is incredibly damaging and it hurts so much because these sort of things reach us on an existential level. The result of a perverse spirituality, a perverse spiritual community or authority is often a deep and sometimes unseen trauma that results in existential shame about who we are, who God is. How many of us have faced some sort of spiritual abuse or trauma in our lives? The stories are everywhere, but they're also often hidden. We haven't been able to find any legitimate studies on this subject to find like real numbers of how many people suffer this sort of trauma. But in an informal Twitter survey, we asked how many of you, the liturgists, have suffered some form of spiritual trauma or abuse. And more than two out of three of you said that you had. But these stories are not ones we usually want to talk about. We don't want to pull up the past and feel that pain again. We don't want to admit how much it really hurts. Today's episode, we'll be speaking with some brilliant people and it will be presented in three acts. The first is recognizing and understanding spiritual trauma. The second will be 
healing from spiritual trauma. And the third will be creating safe spiritual space for others. We think this will be a very important episode for a lot of you, so please do listen with an open mind and open heart. And welcome to the Liturgist Podcast. When I was approximately nine years old, the church that I had grown up in this small southern town pulled my parents and a young single mother up onto the stage one Sunday night and proclaimed they were having a stoning service. Now, I didn't know what this meant. I knew about the stories of Stephen being stoned, and there was great fear at points that someone was going to literally start throwing rocks. They didn't throw rocks, though. They threw something much more potent, their words. For the next hour, I got to hear supposed friends and family stand up and say terrible things about my family because they had had to skip church one Sunday uh, to do some much-needed work on our home, and about this young mother because the only job she could find was at a convenience store, which required her to sell cigarettes and alcohol. Now, in the end, my family came through this okay, although we were greatly scarred in the process, but to this day... I don't know what happened to that young mother who came to this church because she was hurting and alone, and instead of finding a group who loved her and cared for her, she found simply judgment and condemnation. I grew up Southern Baptist in the state of Mississippi, um, and I have a lot of stories I could share about spiritual trauma, but the most um, uh, the most traumatic one to me, and really the one that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, was when I was 19 and visiting my mother. I was a college freshman at the time, and I had recently gotten my nose pierced. And upon arriving to her church, I took out the nose ring because I knew it was not going to be Um, well-received, but a deacon had seen me before I got a chance to do that and told the pastor. And as I was sitting on the front row waiting for church to begin, the choir was filling in the loft, and the pastor comes storming down the aisle and literally grabs me by the back of my neck and drags me down the aisle in front of everyone into the foyer where he essentially excommunicated me from the church, yelling and screaming and raving, He told me I was an abomination to the Lord and that I could not return until I publicly repented in front of the whole congregation. Parents convinced me to go to Bible camp when I was nine, and we were told that hell was seven times hotter than the Earth's molten core. And, you know, to hold our hands over, you know, campfire in the evenings and and to feel what it would feel like to feel fire on our bodies for the rest of eternity. We were shown pictures of Satan, the great white throne with flames underneath. You know, in Sunday school, we were shown movies like A Thief in the Night. Uh, When I was 13, the Christian school I went to took me to a play where they showed um, people being dragged off the stage, people that weren't taken up in the rapture. And then a real gun was used to shoot them off stage. Um, so I, hallucination started by the time I was 12. Chapter 1. Recognizing and Understanding Spiritual Trauma 
Uh, yes, this is Reverend Carol Howard Merritt, but you can call me Carol. Carol Howard Merritt is an award-winning author, speaker, and minister who speaks and writes on the topic of ministering in a new generation. Random strangers, if you tell them that you're a minister, usually you get a really big earful. Either that or, or nobody wants to talk to you. It's one or the other. You know, you're either like trapped for the rest of the night or, you know, nobody wants to talk to you. Carol's newest book is called Healing Spiritual Wounds. So we thought she'd be a great person to talk to about today's subject. I grew up Southern Baptist mainly. My parents got the Holy Ghost in the midst of that, as they say, and, and started going to kind of a charismatic mega church. My father um, was a, a brilliant man. He worked for NASA. He was an artist. He was a lot of things. But he was also pretty violent in our home. Many times he was compelled by this idea that he should be the authority in the home and that my mom and my brother and sister ought to submit. And so I think, you know, it was the 70s. The world wasn't working that way anymore. Wives were starting to to work outside of the home and, and kids. We were sort of expected to rebel in our culture. And I think he just had a very difficult time dealing with that. The more the religious pressure was on him to be this authoritarian dictator at home, he just uh, got more and more violent. It was really difficult because he would often quote verses as he was violent and telling us that we must submit and that he was the authority in our home. So as he was dying, I was realizing how much the violence and the trauma that I was growing up with was so intertwined with the spiritual violence. Mm. It, it felt more than just domestic violence. It, it felt really like there was a spiritual issue I needed to deal with. We're going to hear a lot more from Carol in this episode, but we'd like to introduce you to another person. This is Hillary. Hi, I'm Hillary McBride. So we're talking about trauma, and we're here with uh, Hillary McBride, and she's uh, legit. So unlike me, Science Mike, <laughs> who has absolutely no scientific qualifications whatsoever, Hillary's a... a like a credentialed psychotherapist in Vancouver, Canada, and a PhD candidate uh, in counseling psychology at UBC. So her opinion is what we like to call educated and informed and not highly Google curated like mine. <laughs> so <laughs> it would be fun to have her on the program. All right, to get us started, could we maybe talk about a definition of terms here. What exactly are we talking about when we're talking about trauma? There's lots of different kinds of trauma. I want to be really clear that 
trauma is is something that could be different for everybody. It's a construct that we use to cover a wide variety of experiences and events. And something that may be traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you. I think there are things that we we find disruptive in our lives and people, it's not unusual for people to say, oh my God, I went to the store and they didn't have my shoes. It was totally traumatic for me. And I want to distinguish that from the kind of trauma that we're talking about, which is when your your system, the, the human organism is overwhelmed and starts to operate in a different way than they normally do when they're at rest. The human organism, as far as I understand it, is wired to survive. And so when there's a threat to our survival, and our threat to our survival is determined in a variety of ways, which I'll tell you about in a second, that a threat to our survival causes our brain-body system to do some, some things that it doesn't normally do. We get nervous system activation that would move us into trying to resolve the trauma or stop it or perhaps get away from it. And then if none of those things work, then then we actually shut down. The definition of trauma that I like to use when I'm working with people is something that comes from a mentor and clinical trainer of mine, which is trauma is a negative and unexpected event and leaves a person feeling confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. And that's different than the definition of a traumatic event that we use in our diagnostic manual, our DSM, which talks about an event which, which we see or experience ourselves that threatens our life. Because what we know is that for kids, for children in particular, there could be something that is extraordinarily traumatizing for them, but doesn't actually threaten their life or somebody else's. But they have the same kind of trauma response. So there's lots of kinds of trauma but not all of them would go on to create PTSD. Not all of them would go on to create mm. acute stress disorder or complex PTSD, but I would still consider those legitimate and valid forms of trauma if they were negative and unexpected and left us feeling confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. All right, so that was Hillary. So we've heard from Carol and then Hillary, and we've got one more friend to introduce you to here. Well, my name now, which is different than on my book, um, is Teresa Pasquale Mateos. Teresa Pasquale Mateos is clinical director of RECO Intensive, a trauma and addiction outpatient treatment program near Delray Beach, Florida. She is also a yoga instructor and meditation and retreat facilitator who brings mindfulness and healing into her work for social justice. Well, thanks for joining us today, Teresa. Are there any differences between like just regular trauma and religious trauma? How, how are they similar and how are they different in your experience? It is so interconnected between um, it may be trauma that's being imposed by the family. It's also trauma that's being imposed by the community. And then there's this overarching narrative that the God of all things is also the, the ultimate abusive parent over which all of this, this universe of abuse is being created. And so so um, it's, it's really hard for people to extract themselves from that. And it's really hard to write a new story outside of that. Um, I also think just the nature of how insular religious communities are, the more abusive, the more insular they are, is makes it very difficult. They're very enculturated to a very particular kind of way of being, language, context, culture, and people spend their whole lives in that. And so one of the other unique facets is, one, 
leaving creates this simultaneous inability to know who you are as a person outside of that context. And this deep sense of loss and grief, regardless of how painful the community was for you to be a part of, there's a there's also a deep loss mm. at every level, oftentimes of people's families, but even if they still are connected to their families, just of that entire network and community system, because even at its worst, even in a dysfunctional way, it was a system of support and of bonding and of some kind of nurturing. And so for people to come outside of that and essentially be in a world that's highly individualistic, that doesn't function that way, it's very hard to recreate, again, a story of who am I? outside of this. It's hard for people to understand sometimes. I remember going through the deconstruction of my faith and I was walking through it with a friend of mine. We were having lunch regularly and we were talking about it and he had never experienced any of those sorts of doubts or existential angst or any sort of like loss of faith like that to him. It seemed like, and and at one point he even told me like, is this just like a cool thing now with people? Like you're just doubting. It seems like this is kind of the cool young, you know, progressive Christian thing to have doubt or something. It's like (laughs) it it was to some people. It looks like it's just kind of, Oh, I'm just angsty. And that people don't, that haven't gone through it. Don't understand how, how traumatic it can be. Yeah, even aside from people being mean to you or like being cruel in the middle of it, just the experience, it's a, it's a real experience of loss. And unless you've experienced it, sometimes you, you really don't know how deep that can be. And part of the impetus to write and talk about this for me was because people were, it was being so trivialized. You know, it wasn't being acknowledged as trauma for people. Um, they weren't able to acknowledge it as trauma even for themselves, which stagnates your ability to heal if you can't name what it is you're feeling. Yeah. Um, and then this sort of the wider community just in general, whether you're talking about secular world and even, you know, the therapy context of people not having any awareness that this is a thing or how to treat it. But then also in religious contexts of people, you know, I've seen a lot of people be really flippant, faith leaders, supposed progressive faith leaders be real flippant about the sort of spiritual but not religious in the kind of same way that you were talking about. You know, oh, people are just doing it because they don't care or um, they just really don't want to do the work to be in faith community. And my response to that is, don't you understand that actually people that have to leave spaces that are abusive or that are violent to, to a perception of God is actually not because of a lack of belief or faith or wanting and yearning the divine, but it's actually because of a deep yearning. If people didn't care, they yeah. would just stay inside those systems and and allow yeah. them to be whatever they are. But but it's actually a deep sense of caring and a deep sense of yearning that, that sends people out from places that, that aren't able to spiritually support mm. where they're at and where they're going and that are harmful to them or other people. And that it's not because they don't want community either. You know, this idea that people just don't want to do the work. The people I know that I've had to leave faith communities are doing more hard work than many people inside of them. I've noticed that one of the problems that people who start to suffer from some form of religious trauma face is that dismissal, like people that mock the idea of triggers, or, you know, they say that, you know, you can't be hurt by the church, really, you're just failing to forgive. We have all these 
language gates designed to to block people from a journey of healing to uh, conform and repress. Mm-hmm. And Teresa, I wonder if you might take us through, you know, some of those warning signs people might see in their life uh, on the other side of trauma that they may be uh, kind of ignoring or uh, misdiagnosing because of this insular social pressure. Mm-hmm. It also looks looks different while somebody's still in the community or when they say left. While people are still in the community, oftentimes it can represent a severe low self-esteem, massive depression. So if you're in a space that doesn't validate who you are or how you believe or whatever's going on internally, then you start to feel like you're the bad thing. You're the wrong thing inside of that context. And both for people that are still inside and outside, often kind of as you describe the way that people talk to other people, there's a lot of abusing of spiritualized language, right? So for you, you know, you just need forgiveness on your heart, or I'm praying in the spirit that you will be lifted from this questioning. You know, it's always also that's that overarching idea that God, that that what leaders are saying or peers are saying is coming from God and that what that person is experiencing is not. And so it's this feeling that I must be the bad thing. And so people will potentially start cutting behaviors, self-harm behaviors of some kind Mm. to kind of just mediate the stress and the low self-esteem. As it continues, if people aren't able to get out of that unhealthy environment, um, many people will get suicidal, whether they actually make any attempts or not. They'll have this feeling of just, I wish I just wasn't around. This sort of sense of both being part of this community, but also be feeling really isolated and and beginning to isolate inside themselves and sometimes just isolate in general from the community. For people that have left already that space and are exploring, oftentimes there's a loss of meaning. So the ability to know what means anything or what has value because you have to rebuild a system of understanding outside of everything that you have learned before. Um, People have a really hard time kind of identifying what do I believe What do I believe in? What matters to me anymore? People have a very hard time of identifying who they are in the world. What am I, what am I supposed to do? If my, you know, in that community, my calling was, was a hundred percent about that community. Who am I outside of that? Similarly, people as a result can often feel depression. They can feel isolated because now they're in a world that doesn't look like where they came from. And even though that world might have been harmful, at least the community was already embedded. And so you don't have to go out and seek community in this new way, in this new world that you don't quite understand and don't quite necessarily feel like you belong to. So people can become really isolated. Um, What also can happen is like any kind of abusive family situation, which this is sort of a form of in spiritual and religious trauma, people will often recreate the abuse in relationship with someone else. So I've heard everything from, I found a therapist, but I found one that uh, was actually harmful for me because I didn't know this, you know, I was I was guiding myself towards the signs of the same kind of person as that community was for me. And so I didn't see the signs that they were harmful or people will end up in harmful partnered relationships or friendship relationships that actually mirror the abusiveness of that environment. Mm. Some of, some of our friends that grew up in particularly controlling religious environments, uh, we've had conversations about like, 
what's the difference between that and a cult? Did I grow up in a cult? Um, what do you, <laughs> you know, like what, how do you define a cult? Where, how do people, what, what's the difference between, you know, a super controlling pastor at a Pentecostal church and a, a more typically thought of cult? Well, honestly, when you come down to look at the dynamics and if you were going to do a checklist of all the components that are entailed in a cult, there's very little difference, honestly, in how what they do and how they impact people, except the semantics of ones that have been visibly raised up and called publicly, you know, this is a cult. Yeah. Other than that, what actually happens inside of uh, inside of a highly controlling a uh, religious church environment and what happens inside of a cult system is really very it's almost ident- it's pretty much identical. Huh, well, that's what we thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say I think in in my past research, one of the the big indicators of a cult versus uh I guess maybe just a fundamentalist religious sect will be the demotion of the family unit. So an attempt to, uh, almost in an Orwellian way, weaken or loosen the bonds of family to strengthen adherence to the faith community. The truth is, is, is so many fundamentalist uh, church environments do that by this sort of centering, uh, this this unhealthy, abusive, God-centric focus um, and the ideals that come down from the unhealthy, abusive God that it creates a lot of those same dynamics in many settings because of the fact that, um, you know, listening to your child or listening to your brother, even when they're hurting, even when they tell you that they're being abused emotionally, physically, sexually, whatever, whatever gamut of thing, most often what happens is that the church system, the leaders get, and, and the structures of the community get prioritized over the voice, the needs, and the reality for that person, even in your own family system. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've heard pastors that are closer to me than I care to admit, relationally and historically, say things like, don't let your gay adult child come home for Christmas if they're living in sin, because by doing so, you'll approve of their lifestyle. That kind of, That's tearing apart a family. I mean, that's weakening family bonds. I mean, there's all sorts of examples that I've heard of people within sort of fundamentalist, but but more mainstream sounding Christian camps than, than you wouldn't call it a cult because you'd say, you know, it's Pentecostal or whatever. Um, I'd call it a cult, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, but most people don't because it is Christianity. It's acceptable by most Christians as a sect of Christianity, but the way it's practiced, it really gets culty. Which is so dangerous, you know, because if you make something seem palatable, um, then you can get away with a whole lot more. You don't have the same kind of focus or critique on you, but the level of harm that gets done and the huge factor in maintaining cults is that if anybody goes outside of the bounds of what the cult approves or agrees, then they get shunned, you know? And so not letting your gay son come home for Christmas is part of that shunning. You know, your sister leaves the church community and then you don't talk for 10 years because... You really aren't supposed to talk to somebody who's fallen away from the faith anymore. Yeah. That's that's all cult-like behavior. Yeah. My own spiritual trauma came frequently paired with emotional abuse from my fundamentalist pastor, who was also my dad. 
One of the many forms of that spiritual abuse that was and is common in my family and the church I grew up in was a social ostracizing and a private condescension toward anyone who posed a threat to their faith. And those threats were seen everywhere, and they were the works of Satan in their minds. I grew up in an environment where dissent, disobedience, or disbelief often meant the loss of family and community. Once during a conversation where my dad was pointing out Satan's role in my uncle's marital problems, I expressed that I don't believe in a literal, supernatural being called Satan. The color drained from my dad's face, and his eyes grew wide. His lips shook as he responded, You're going to be seeing him really soon. Let's go back to Hillary. What happens when we go through a trauma that leaves us, or that creates in us during the trauma, this feeling of being confused, overwhelmed, and powerless, kind of stuck, is something that I like to understand through Porges, the lens of Porges' polyvagal theory. So Stephen Porges is a neurobiologist who looks at how the vagus nerve, so polyvagal, multiple vagus, uh, how this specific nerve when we experience trauma gets activated and does different things to our body. Polyvagal theory looks at what's called the phylogenic hierarchy of stress response. So an evolutionary model of stress response where we lose function in our most highly evolved brain structures first. We also try and access them first, but when they don't work, we move to lower and lower and kind of older, if you will, uh, brain structures. We've got this level of response that happens, and if if we're able to access the first level of stress response, the highest and highest level or most evolved level, the social connection or the the one branch of the ventral vagus nerve response, then we would try and connect with someone. And if they responded to us, maybe we'd feel overwhelmed, but it wouldn't leave us feeling like we couldn't keep on going. Like, let's just say one of you is in the room with me and you charged at me. I might say, stop, right? All of the nerves that run into my larynx and my face would get activated as a way of helping me connect with you socially. And if you responded, maybe it would be confusing and overwhelming in the moment about why you lunged at me, but perhaps that might have a different kind of response for me or an impact on me than if you kept at me and my social connection branch of my vagus nerve my ventral vagal branch didn't work. So then maybe my body is going to go into the other branch of the ventral vagus nerve, the fight or flight or freeze response. When we're in danger, our body responds in a way that either gets us out of there or helps us fight back. Depending on how that goes, if the fight or flight branch doesn't work, we move into the dorsal vagal branch, which is the backside of the vagus nerve. And that, in a way to keep us alive, actually gets our body to shut down. So depending on what level of response was used and how the person experienced it, they might be able to say, oh gosh, that was really scary that someone charged at me. But I'm able to retain a belief that I could tell them to say to stop, I could tell them no, and that I would be okay. Whereas if they've tried to keep themselves safe and something hasn't worked, it could lead to feeling even more and more traumatized. 
But when we're going through something that's really traumatizing, our brain, I'm going to use that word kind of um, just in general to refer to the whole whole cranial package, our brain assesses all of the sensory information around us. We're noticing the color, the time of day, the temperature, the light through the trees, the smells in the room, smells are a big one. And all of that stuff, because it's processed in our limbic system in the same part of our brain that processes emotional intensity and does our memory processing, all of those things get stored together. The emotions, the sensory information, and packaged together in a way that they get stored and linked inextricably. So if later something happens that triggers something in that package, everything comes back. A good example of that would be if um, if I'm walking through the woods and I'm noticing it's a beautiful, calm, sunny day and there's this particular green in the trees because it's April and I I smell the smell of some of the different grasses and then I hear a rustling in the bushes. Maybe my fight or flight response is going to get activated or my freeze response. I'm going to be assessing what's happening. My amygdala response is telling me there might be danger here. Check out what's going on. And then if there's a threat, then perhaps my body's going to get so overwhelmed that I'm not going to be focusing on, oh, wow, look at the color of the leaves and the trees or what a beautiful sunny day or what am I going to be talking about, Um, you know, with my friend next week. All of a sudden, your brain has moved from being highly cognitive and intellectual and considering different pieces of information into a more of a subcortical state where all of the parts of your brain that are responsible for capturing information about what's around you those are going to become activated and stored together with the fear in the moment. So let's just say I get out of the forest and, you know, there was a bear chasing me, but I got away. Perhaps I might think cognitively, wow, that was really, really, really scary. But wow, I'm go- gosh, I'm so glad that it's over. Maybe my conscious brain is telling me that, that it's okay, but other parts of my brain might not have caught up. They might still be storing that information in such a way that it could protect me if I was in a dangerous situation again. So let's just say it's been a few months and I thought, oh, that was so scary. I've told a few friends. Wow, I couldn't believe it. I saw a bear. That was nuts. Then I'm hiking again and similar smell in the air, similar time of day. I happen to be wearing a sweatshirt that touches my neck in the same way that the sweater that I was wearing that day many months ago was touching my neck. And I hear a breeze run through the trees. Because of how that information of the initial trauma is stored in my brain, all of the fear associated with the initial trauma is going to come back up because those subcortical structures of my brain are thinking, not thinking, but they're reacting to the current environment in the same way as if the thing that happened before is happening again now. It may be something that seems counterproductive because what's what's the point in getting all worked up if there's no bear there? But we call that the false positive response, which is that when you've your body and your brain are wired in such a way that they're going to respond to what could be a threat. Because from an evolutionary perspective, it's more advantageous for you to respond to a potential threat with all of the activation needed to keep you safe 
and then go, oh, wow, okay, that's not a threat. Good, I'm safe. Then to just play it cool and go, ah, that's probably nothing and then get eaten by a bear. (laughs) So our body is wired to take all of that information that is associated with the primary trauma and code it in such a way that whenever we're in an environment or any kind of sensory information, even internal uh, proprioceptive information, so the position of our muscles relative to our spine, the way that our eyes are positioned and where we're looking, all of that stuff can actually trigger up the trauma. So there's a a client that I used to work with who was in the grocery store and had, uh, was just buying groceries and then all of a sudden passed out and had no, no conscious awareness of what had happened. And as we, we talked about it and we did a little bit of work and we're starting to unpack some of the sensory stuff, we realized together after doing some processing that her brain had connected the smell of the man's breath behind her in line with the smell of the man's breath who had sexually assaulted her. And she had been immediately kind of uh, urged, nudged, shoved into a dorsal vagal response of feigning death that her body had completely shut down. But she didn't consciously notice, oh, the smell. It was her body underneath her conscious awareness that took control because the memory of that smell was associated with the initial sexual assault. Wow. We just had a conversation with some a yoga teacher who, mm-hmm. who is also a therapist who was talking about the body-mind connection mm-hmm. of trauma. And I had mentioned to her that it, it often happens to my wife, especially when she's like stretching her hips. Mm-hmm. She'll hit like a pocket and it just becomes very emotional for yes, her. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Just stretching, not thinking about, but this stretching out her hips. And, and the yoga teacher said that this is a very common thing mm-hmm. for women mm-hmm. what they, you were mentioning with the ligaments and the muscles is yeah. that something along that lines you think that absolutely that's something that i come across all the time and there's actually specific kinds of trauma therapy that have been designed to treat body memory of trauma that people don't have any conscious memory of so it's helping the body titrate between so move back and forth between the intense kind of sensation and rest as a way of helping the body learn, and I use that term kind of with air quotes, learn that that the trauma is over and helping helping the body catch up to speed with the cortex, the neocortex of our brain that knows there's nothing funky going on here. It's just, I'm just stretching my hip. But there's two particular kinds of, of trauma-based therapies. Actually, there's more than that. Um, body-based trauma therapy, somatic experiencing uh, is one of them, and Hakomi-based therapies and all sorts of other body-based therapies that look at helping people who have no conscious memory of a trauma move through it. And that can be really important because people, especially people who have complex trauma, um, people who have significant dissociative components of their peritraumatic experience, so during the trauma, they lost conscious awareness their body will store that memory even if their conscious brain doesn't. And people can often feel wow. even more powerless and frustrated thinking, why why can't I look in a certain direction? Why can't I move my neck in a certain way without becoming totally immobilized? Wow. And so it helps people move through and resolve and process a trauma without <laughs> even using language very much at all. 
Oh, wow. body's crazy. Yeah. It's wild. That it's just, amazing. It's just, that just so, significantly so, blew my it's mind. Amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> well, it's, it's helpful for people to know. No, I've just noticed that mm-hmm. since uh, uh, my motorcycle accident, mm-hmm. if I tilt my head back too far, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll like start to have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my incredibly pragmatic way of being, I just don't tilt my head back that right. far ever. Yeah. <laughs> And don't worry about it. But yeah. it's interesting to think if that... Because I don't have any memory of the accident itself. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny to think that perhaps uh, perhaps that wonderful lizard brain of mine remembers more yeah. about hitting the pavement than my neocortex I'm so fond of. We have mm. different kinds of memory, right? So the one that we most often talk about would be our explicit or our declarative memory. The things that we can consciously recall that have time span- stamps, that have descriptive information related to them that might even have a little bit of emotion to them. But we have an entirely different subsection of memories, our procedural memory, which has nothing necessarily to do with our neocortex. And it's how our body stores sensory information in order to keep us safe. So there's studies of people who have damage to their cortex and to specific neuroanatomical structures where they can't remember consciously, they don't have explicit or declarative memory. But when that person encounters someone who has been mean to them in the past, their body actually will turn away without them even understanding. So in one research study that I'm talking about, there was an individual who, whose body changed directions. And he was like, why did I just turn around? Because he had gotten close to a person who in the study had been told to be kind of disrespectful to him. So he had no conscious memory of the things Mm. that the individual said to him or what the context was, but his body would kind of freeze and then he would turn directions. Yeah, I read a a similar account about a man who who they they did a pretty prolonged research on. He had a form of encephalitis in his brain tissue. Mm -hmm. It damaged some of his memory structures. Mm. And so he lost the ability to form explicit memory. That he'd go for walks, and his wife was so frustrated because it was, they were afraid he would get lost. Right. Um, and when they told him you can't go for a walk, he couldn't remember he's not supposed to go <laughs> for a walk. Right. That didn't land. Right. But what they found was the experience of walking with his wife had trained his procedural memory mm-hmm. how to get home. That's right. So in his mind, he would go for a walk with no goal or guidance, and end up at his house Mm -hmm. and even if you went with him and let him lead as he was on the street to go home he couldn't tell you where he was going or why but as soon as he walked in he'd walked in and start making food so it's it's really remarkable yeah um we we have this self-image of our conscious mind having the majority of influence on our actions and our (laughs) beliefs and our behaviors yeah um, kind of but the more thinking. we learn about ourselves, the less that seems to be true. Yeah, yeah. it's true. It's completely. I think it, it helps us feel like we're in control because part of trauma is actually feeling out of control. And there's something that I encounter quite regularly in people who who unpack the neurobiology of trauma and their trauma treatment is, wow, there's so much more going on than I even knew. And while that's relieving because I'm not, I'm not broken or I'm not weak or there's a reason why I can't just get over this. It's also pretty scary that there's all sorts of stuff going on that I don't even know about. And any of those systems could kick in at any time. And my conscious and my intellectual brain just goes offline just like that. 
Well, it's so sad that as a culture, we tend to be very dismissive of triggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've so often heard the idea of triggers yeah. being a snowflake phenomenon. But what we're talking about is a feature of the human mind-body system mm. that is older than language yeah. and frankly has preserved the species in extremely harsh environments. This is my own opinion as a, as a clinician, as an academic, as a person who, who considers myself to be spiritual and to have feelings and experiences of God as well. I think of every trauma as being spiritual. Every single kind of trauma a person could experience is spiritual. It changes our understanding of how the world works, of what it means to exist, of if we are safe, if we can be a part of a community, if we can trust that community, if our body is working the way we want it to. And I think of spirituality. I I really like McNee's definition, which is it's it's a dimension or a core to humans that seek to discover meaning, purpose, and connections with others, with self, and ultimately with God. So how could a trauma not affect our spirituality, when our spirituality is about the essence of being human, about what it means to to exist and to be in this world and to feel like mm. we're safe or not. Chapter 2 healing from spiritual trauma. For me personally, um, great paid professional counselors have been just such a lifesaver in many ways and given me tools and um, a new language for dealing with trauma. Finding people that accept me, not contingent upon my spiritual beliefs or my adherence to Christian norms has been a huge step towards healing for me. In other seasons of my life, um, another helpful thing has been really to um, take God out of the box, if you will, take religion out of the box, if you will, and begin to explore new settings and new environments um, to grow deeper in my faith and my understanding of who God is and my place in His kingdom here on earth. So some seasons that's looked like being a part of really orthodox churches, other seasons it's been house churches. And then other seasons still, I've experienced really a stepping away from organized religion altogether. Nature has been a great healer. Um, Sunday morning hikes with my kids and my husband have given me the space I've needed oftentimes to process uh, my experiences and to make room for God to bring healing. I was raised in the Midwest in a very conservative Missouri Synod Lutheran household. Growing up, I was taught that the father is the head of the household and answers to God for the responsibility of the family. God holds an umbrella that the father is protected under, and the father holds an umbrella that his family is protected under. Stray from dad's umbrella and reap the consequences. One earth-shaking day, my counselor skipped the typical reflected questions and made her first and probably only direct statement to me. She said, there is no umbrella. Life happens. Good and bad things come whether you are under an umbrella or not. This changed my life forever.
kind of skimming our email inbox and talking to people at events and touring like we do and hearing people's stories, what I've noticed is so often there is a trauma, either little T or big T. Mm -hmm. So either they had questions and their faith community rejected them because of that, which because we're a social species, a total or near total collapse of your social web is an incredibly stress-inducing event. Or they had an event in their life that was traumatic, the failure of a spiritual mentor that was very significant. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I had an email this week from someone who said that they were raped by a spiritual leader. Wow. And and miscarried uh, the child. Wow. Her words. And that was like a, a very similar to an email I'd gotten a week and a half before that. Wow. And, and what I've noticed comes out of these, these events, whether they're big T, little T, is then comes a question. All these, the, I hear these truly, truly terrible. St- I cry reading the yeah, emails, right? This didn't even that. happen to me. Mm-hmm. And I weep reading the emails. And then they say, why does God feel so distant? yeah. yeah. And so I'm always trying to tell them, you've had this incredibly significant event that happened in your life mm-hmm. that uh, you you really should seek professional assistance in, in processing and dealing with. And it's okay and probably necessary to set this God question aside for the moment. Yeah. Because if you're dissociating from memories and dissociating from social experiences in your life, uh, neurologically understand God to be kind of a, an amalgam between a feeling and an experience uh, in, in believers' brains. And so when you're having your emotional processes so altered by trauma, well, of course, God is going to seem distant. Yeah. Uh, but it's so interesting how they, they, after these events, they often engage our work mm-hmm. and they start trying mm-hmm. to do the intellectual work Mm-hmm. of um, processing back to some form of theology. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, so much of their brain is saying, I am scared yeah. and hurt yeah. and confused, but it's happening below the language capacity. The approach that I take to working with trauma, as well as my my academic approach would be a biopsychosocial, and I would add in there a spiritual as well, looking at how trauma affects every part of our lives, our body, including our neurobiology, um, how we think, how we feel about ourselves, how we relate to other people, how we interpret other people's interactions with us, and then meaning-making. What does suffering mean? What does pain mean? Am I alone? So I try and look at it from all angles and provide depending on where the person's at, provide treatment at each of those levels for people. It's really important Mm. to understand the neurobiological implications of trauma. And unlike many other kinds of talk therapy, trauma activates different parts of the brain and is stored differently than regular content that people work through. So it's important to be able to understand that so that we don't create more harm in working with people who have trauma. There are some serious implications of being unqualified in working with trauma because you can create more symptoms, more pain, more trauma, trauma on top of trauma. And so there's a significant ethical uh, 
expectation that that working with trauma demands an understanding of the brain as well as the brain body system then when people feel like they've got a handle on their symptoms and they're not having flashbacks and they're not dissociating they're not self-harming they feel like their body is settling the trauma isn't as active then we move into saying so how are we going to deal with the fact that something really awful happened to you But the way that trauma is stored in the brain-body system means that our meaning-making neuroanatomical structures essentially are offline while the trauma is being activated, either peri-trauma, so during the trauma, or after when, when we're processing the trauma. And so until the trauma has been deemed to be over by the brain-body system, not the conscious mind, but by the subcortical structures of our brain... Only then can we start to move into meaning-making and the social and relational implications of things. Mm. And then I like to help people come up with some sort of way of moving through like suffering. What does suffering in this world mean? And how do we start to put life back together after trauma? But the short answer would be, yeah, I take an approach to the whole body and the whole body and person and whole body and person and system together, usually in that order. I would love to hear more about what you're saying with consciousness raising, but when you also talked about working with trauma, Mm -hmm. what does that mean and how does that bleed into normal life Mm -hmm. where just having dinner with somebody and if you're a listening, compassionate person, you will often have moments where things really get real and trauma comes up. And when you're talking about working with trauma versus what where are those lines between where this is like you know this is getting to a space where this probably should move to to a therapist right. of some kind yeah um or a professional rather than just dealing with and talking about things on a human level yeah that gets emotional that everybody has trauma that and yeah. and part of relationship is learning how to talk about such things and and processing through things with people that you love and that you're going through things with so where are those lines where yeah. you're like this this is where it's moving into kind of dangerous territory for your brain yeah I'm so glad you asked that question. I actually just earlier this week was invited to do a four-hour workshop on this specific question. So there's obviously a lot here. How do we how do we keep people safe while also respecting the vulnerability of a disclosure of trauma, of helping people feel like we're not shutting them down when they share about their trauma and we're really listening, but it's not moving into the space of doing therapeutic processing. When people are starting to get physiologically activated, um, that's a really good cue that it's probably moving into some territory that's connected to the trauma. And what's helpful to note is that when trauma occurs, it's stored in such a way that it doesn't get the time stamp that other memories do where our brain knows that it's over. And our conscious and intellectual brain, like our neocortex, would know if we were self-reflective, the trauma is over, but our body operates in such a way that the trauma may still be going on. So when people talk about it, it can be moved very quickly into their brain-body system, feeling like the trauma is happening again in that moment. They can become physiologically aroused. And I don't mean sexually aroused. I mean their sympathetic nervous system is activated. So heart racing, pupils dilating, uh, short of breath, hot in certain areas of cold in certain areas of their body, racing thoughts, feeling overwhelmed with emotions. 
that if people are having a hard time staying in the present moment while they're talking about something, then it's a pretty good sign that it's moving into a re-experiencing of the trauma. Mm. It's helpful for people to note as well that even in therapy, most, most therapists who have advanced clinical training in the neurobiology of trauma will not get people to tell the details of their trauma over and over again. There is some evidence that in a kind of exposure therapy, um, Edna Foa has done a lot of research in that area. We now know that people who are asked to expose themselves to the worst details of the trauma over and over and over again can have increased symptoms and more physiological and psychological consequences emerge. So it's important for people to know that even in therapy, we're not asking people to tell the details of their trauma. Most of the time we're working through it in, in ways that are much deeper than the language centers of our brain. So if you find that you're curious about someone's experience and you're asking details, that's probably something better left uh, for therapy, if in therapy at all. Or if people are they're they're almost compulsively telling the story that could be them actually reenacting it or re-experiencing it so having someone talk about the impact of an event on their life is so important for meaning making and for healing saying wow this is really hard i felt so alone it feels really good to tell you tell you that i went through something really hard that would be totally different than if somebody is actually if you get the sense that they're they're kind of in it again, they're telling it, um, mm. and it's almost like their brain-body system is reliving it in that moment as they're talking about it. They may have a difficult time actually forming words because of where trauma is stored relative to our uh, linguistic centers. So I think we have to be really careful about saying, this is so important. I'm so glad you told me. Thank you for sharing. You're safe with me. Uh, I believe you but then not getting so curious ourselves or noticing when somebody is kind of getting stuck replaying the story. That, that's a different kind of work. Mm. So when, that, when you run up against that wall, what, what would you recommend to a normal person that is in a, in a conversation where they seem like, it seems like it's starting to go there? Because it, it's awkward to say, like, don't tell me that. Yeah. Tell that to a therapist yeah. as a friend, you know? <laughs> yeah. But how can you gracefully kind of lead them into safer space? Yeah. Uh, it's really good to take a one-down position. So I I don't know how to help you in a way that's going to keep you safe is a much better thing to say than don't tell me that. It's too much for me. We don't want the person to feel alone or like they are a burden for us, but it's fair to have healthy boundaries and acknowledge to the person who's disclosing, I I don't know how to support you in a way that's going to keep you well. And what I think would be really useful is if you could talk to someone who had skills and training to help you move through this. And I'm happy to support you to do that. Would it be useful for us to find someone for you to talk to? Could I help you in that way? Could I drive you to the first appointment? Um, do you want to call me after and let me know how it went? But what I know about trauma is that it's, it's a big deal and that we've got to be really careful just in the same way that if you had a headache, I wouldn't give you brain surgery. I don't want to go somewhere where I could actually make things worse for you, but I want to honor your, your telling me the story and let you know that I, I love you and care for you. And, and I want to support you in a way that, that I actually can without making things worse. Mm. 
Mm. That's really good. All of our interpersonal interactions can be extremely significant in resolving trauma. In the field of interpersonal neurobiology, we know that that relationships are a very, very powerful tool for creating affect regulation, for helping people feel like they're settled, like they're safe. Uh, eye contact, tone of voice, is someone's physical presence. All of those things can actually create significant neuroanatomical change when they're done well. And relationship can, can be one of the best tools for healing trauma when it's done right. Not surprisingly, then, interpersonal trauma is very, very, very difficult to treat because, like I was saying before, with all of the components of trauma that are stored in our brain, if it's not just the color of the sky and the leaves and the trees, but it is someone who I trusted, stored in that package of trauma memories is, I can't be safe with people anymore, that then getting to a place Mm. where there could be resolution of trauma with a therapist, with a family member could be extremely difficult because the thing that the brain is wired to look out for is people who want to be close, people who want you to trust them again. So there are significant implications of how interpersonal trauma affects us compared to, I don't want to minimize this in any way, but, you know, an earthquake or a a car accident or something which we can say, okay, the car is out there. And as long as I'm not in the car, I'm going to be okay. But when the thing that has hurt you is, was a trust relationship, how do you move forward? Like Mike was saying, we are social creatures who are designed to function in a social network. Our identity, our safety, our survival is predicated on having people that we can trust. And if that is the source of the violation, how do we move forward? How do we exist? But again, that also tells us that being safe for people could help their brain unlearn that they're not allowed to be safe anymore. Not surprisingly, one of the first phases of trauma therapy is safety and stabilization. And sometimes that takes years for a person to actually trust a therapist. And then processing can go really quick after that. But safety, when a person has been taught not to ever feel safe, means that the relationships are an important part in the trauma healing, but may come differently than we expect them to. For me, part of how I've handled some of the trauma in my life and pain has been less, and I'm as I'm hearing you talk about the uh, relational trust issues and stuff, we'll not turn this into a, a session right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I've gone through... A lot of it alone, but I feel like still effectively alone. And there are theological and philosophical and spiritual practice work Mm -hmm. that have vastly improved and and brought healing to my life. Mentioning, and I wanted to say it with you on the line in case you needed to offer any uh, caveats to it, because I, I, I think... Finding professional therapy is, is, of course, incredibly important for so many people. Um, But I don't think professional therapy is fundamental to humanity. Mm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? As far as it's it's something that has grown and and become very valuable. Um, But there are some fundamental ways of living as a human being Mm -hmm. and thinking as a human being Mm -hmm. and loving as a human being and processing that also can 
can find healing in other ways. I mean, yeah. and uh, and hopefully, if if our faith is worth much, if religion is worth anything, a healthy spirituality does some of this work mm-hmm. as well, both relationally in community and individually. Yeah, I think that that therapy. Honestly, I don't think we'd need it if we were all healthy people. It's this kind of, it's been co-opted as a business and people get specific training and working in specific things. But if we had healthy communities and we were healthy people, I don't think we'd need it. And therapeutic interactions would be existing between all of us all the time. But if you look at how our culture and our context is changing, we have less and less time to sit with people as they process. We become more and more uncomfortable with our own pain. And so our own pain gets triggered by somebody else's pain and we don't know how to sit with them. And so we send them off into a small room with somebody who they pay money to, to listen to them. I should say that it's a little bit different uh, when we're doing advanced clinical work in trauma, because that would be kind of like saying we don't need surgery. If we were all healthy, wouldn't we wouldn't need surgery. And maybe that's true, but it's good to have medical professionals around to know how to extract a, you know, a bullet from somebody's stomach. But I think that mm-hmm. if we had healthier relationships, this need to go off and find somebody else to listen to you wouldn't be as high. But there's a lot of shame with sharing our our experiences of pain with other people and other people don't know how to listen and we don't know how to practice authenticity with each other. And so we pretty much just walk around doing I, it stuff all the time. But I think you're right that there's lots of ways to exist and to be healthy and to heal without using therapy. And there's lots of people who are trying those Mm -hmm. things who could also benefit from therapy. So I don't think it's to say that therapy is the way or that it isn't, but I think Therapy is the result of some breakdowns in human functioning and human interpersonal interactions that um, necessitate a private and confidential space where people can talk with someone who's trained. Yeah, I mean, I think you could make the argument that like almost nothing in the modern human experience is intrinsic or endemic to the human organism. Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, For most of our current evolutionary anthropological state of development we didn't even have language much less culture or agriculture or google or whatever so you know i view therapy as a a mimetic technology Mm. Mm -hmm. that exists within a larger cultural socio-emotional infrastructure Hmm. Uh, it is a it is a tool built to help treat uh, brain states that occur in the psychosocial construct that we've built in our culture. Right. In the same way that like insulin pumps are a medical device we've used to treat a nutritional issue endemic to the way we do agriculture. Like you could say, well, if we just ate differently, we mm. wouldn't need, many people wouldn't need insulin, which is true, mm-hmm. but it's also true that if we went back to a true paleolithic form of eating, the vast majority of humans on the planet would starve. Mm. So I think in the context in which the human organism exists today, therapy is a 
consistently useful technology. Yeah, I think <laughs> when I listen to you say that, I think about how how useful it is because there are some things that exist today that didn't. But I also think therapy has been extracted from healthy didactic and interpersonal relationships and so now exists outside of mm. those. So I don't know if it has evolved as a um, as a profession and as a set of skills training because it it needed to or because it disappeared from situations and interactions where it would have previously existed. So it shifted the location. I guess I've just seen people that you know, have a lot of therapy and mm-hmm. they're still just playing the same very destructive ego games. And I've seen people that have experienced very painful things, have had no therapy, but have somehow been healed and walked through it. And I think it goes kind of back to where you started with therapy is your tool. Mm-hmm. It's if you go into therapy as like you're looking for a savior mm. to fix you. Mm-hmm you're using that tool in sort of an unhealthy way. Yeah. I think it's, I agree that it's a very effective tool, but it's your tool. Right. It's, it's part of your journey and your life. So that's, that's what yeah. I guess I just didn't want it to make it come across also that people should have some sort of uh, obligation or shame if they're moving towards health, but it's not therapy centric or whatever. It's a tool. It's a helpful one, but it's, it's your tool. Yeah, yeah, it is my tool. You're right. And it, I'm so aware that not all therapy is equal and not all therapists are the same. And there's so many different therapeutic orientations and someone can walk in to see me and I can be treating them I thou, but they want a behavioral approach and I, I might not do that. And so it may not work for them. So it's not about therapy in general. I think there's what is the presenting issue? Uh, what are the empirically valid treatments that we know help that person? Are they ready for change? Is the fit good? Um, are they, are those changes going to be supported by their, uh, by their community? But I would ask you the same question about a, a medical issue. If somebody had a medical trauma, when would you suggest that medical intervention is appropriate? And when would you say it's appropriate for them to try and heal on their own? And what combination of those things would people use I think that there is still pervasive stigma around therapy and the vulnerability associated with it. And there might be some people, like I mentioned before, who would be really responsive to a very specific kind of therapy with a specific therapist. And maybe some people who could get to those places sooner with a therapist and there are other people where it would create more issues in their life. So we want to look at the psychosocial challenges that people have in their life. If we look at it from a a biomedical model, we realize how much stigma that exists in seeking support around those specific issues and how pervasive in faith communities is this idea if you just pray enough or if you take other approaches and you try and do it on your own, that there's some more nobility to that. So instead of Mm, saying, instead of saying that therapy is the thing that cures people, I would say God heals and God uses lots of different ways and God is love and love heals. And there are lots of different ways for people to experience and seek healing. But when we create rigidity against accessing certain kinds of healing, that that's an important thing to look at. Yeah, yeah. There are lots of people who I've said, I'm not rent a friend. I'm not your friend who you can come to and talk to about problems in your life. 
without actually going to deep places. And so there's lots of people I've said, I don't think you need therapy and I don't think you need it at this time. And if you feel like there's some reason why you want to keep coming back, let's look at some of the behavioral solutions around helping you secure a, a network of people who can meet those needs. But I want for you to have real friendships, not just to pay me to listen to you. There's way more that we can do here. So you're not uh, just a therapist, Teresa. You're also a yoga instructor. I am. Um, do those two disciplines uh, relate into how you approach uh, coping with and treating trauma? Yes, they do. Um, yoga, in my own healing from my trauma, I found yoga and what it did for me that psychotherapy hadn't done, and even my spiritual, my religious upbringing hadn't done, was embody a way to hold my spirituality and also a way to connect to the suffering from my trauma that have, was locked in my body in a way that I couldn't identify more than just kind of knowing that something was being let go, something was being liberated. And so being able to be embodied in my healing was really important. And um, that led to studying Buddhist meditation, which led me to also um, the Christian contemplative practice. And I always say that those three together were really powerful uh, tools for my healing, really powerful spiritual practices and disciplines. And so for me, I always say yoga starts with breath. And I also think healing starts with breath because everything gets dysregulated in our body when we feel like we are in danger. And so our body gets uh, disoriented, it either stops altogether or becomes sped up like hyperventilation. And so um, for me, when I work with clients, the very preliminary thing that I always do, and even when I do retreats or workshops or anything, really, I always start with a breath practice because I believe we have to settle down what the body's doing that might not be regulated before we can work on any of the things that are happening in the mind. One of my favorite books that's uh, come out recently is a book called The Body Keeps the Score. It relates to all the ways that we store trauma, you know, in, in our physical bodies. You know, we tend to think of the brain as this um, seat of ourselves, right? And then our body is just a support system that transports and protects the brain. Uh, but that's, that's not, it's not that accurate. <laughs> so certainly like, you know, our consciousness emerges uh, from the brain, especially the, the, the neocortex. But uh, our brain is is basically you wrap a, a dinner napkin thick neocortex around the brain, and that's like our human reasoning faculty. And then, kind of inside of that is a mammal brain about the size of your fist. We call the limbic system, and that's where we think of our feelings, kind of originating from. And then that wraps around uh, like a uh, frog's brain or an alligator's brain, uh, and the hind brain and down the brain stem. Then there's, there's a nerve that runs from the brain to the 100 million neurons in your gut, right? And what's interesting is if you sever the nerve uh, between, you know, the brain in your head and the brain in the gut, the brain in the gut will continue to function just fine uh, without any oversight from the primary brain. It turns out that that nerve signal... Uh, one of its main functions is to uh, transmit anxiety between the two brains. <laughs> so if you get anxious in your head and worried, 
you'll have a similar set of neurotransmitters released in your gut and you might have cramping or bloating or diarrhea right you'll you'll have physical symptoms from this anxiety because the neurons in your gi tract are mirroring the neurons in your brain in the same way if your gut gets anxiety which it can on its own if it thinks that there's uh, something that doesn't belong in the gut it will start to flush the gut, right? You can have some like irritable bowel syndrome where you have, have, a, have a very nervous gut that's constantly trying to get rid of everything that's in there. But when it's doing that, it will actually transmit that anxiety up to the, the brain in your head who will then mirror the anxiety of the gut. So mm-hmm. when you, that was a long intro to get to this next point. Some research is saying that it's possible that um, our posture and indeed uh, practices like yoga by moving and tightening and loosening and relaxing and freeing the tissue in the GI tract can then affect the responsiveness of those neurons and therefore change the chemistry of the brain. And this could help us understand why practices like yoga are so powerful because the the rest of our body's systems and tissues have stored trauma related to events. Think about the way you tighten your shoulders and your core when you're nervous. If you're nervous all the time, all that constant tension will, will change the way some of your body systems function. And just because you kind of work things out cognitively upstairs in your brain doesn't mean the rest of the body has caught up or been reconditioned. And so that's where these practices come in to help the entire body. Uh, I, I guess you could say this would be a, a metaphor, but to let the body grieve as much as the brain has. Man, this is a real shortcoming of so much Western practiced spirituality mm-hmm. to sort of ignore the physicality aspect of what we tend to make such an intellectual practice and then sometimes an emotional practice of our spirituality, whether it's it's teaching and worship and such. I've rarely come across any sort of Western practiced Christianity that incorporates much physicality into spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, for me at least, I see that as a huge shortcoming. I mean, it's a shortcoming of Western science and medicine, how we treat parts of the body rather than an interconnected mind-body system. And then a shortcoming, a shortcoming additionally of Western spirituality and Western Christian contemplative practice that has entirely disconnected itself from embodiment, unlike Eastern practices that engage the body and the mind and the spirit as all one part of who you are as a spiritual being and what needs to be engaged in the fullness of your spirituality. We've largely disconnected those places and siloed the parts of who we are. Um, I also would connect that disembodiment with a lack of connection to social justice and activism in the world that happens often with this sort of siloed individualist Christian contemplative practice, Mm. because we're not embodying it in our physical selves. So why would it, it provoke us to be embodied in the world? So for someone who they're just broken, right? They've just... They've just been broken by a faith community or a significant spiritual figure in their life. How do they start to move forward? 
Well, I think it starts with very basic steps of people trying to figure out who they are. What do I want? What do I love? What am I passionate about? Beginning to build a sense of self that isn't reliant on that person or community that held so much of their identity before. Just from basic things like, what is something I might enjoy to do? You know, uh, what is something I really love? What are, what are things I remember bringing me joy that didn't have to necessarily do with that space and place? And being able to kind of feel safe and secure again. That's why I say I always start everything I do with simple breathing practices because sometimes it literally is about what's still stored in your body. To be able to regulate stress in the body through something as simple as breath begins to allow somebody to feel in moments where they start to panic again, feel that I am safe in this moment, you know, that I can calm down in this moment, that the the things that terrified me are not here right now. And then over time for people, uh, the work becomes about what is my meaning making system? You know, and people land on various, uh, various continuum, you know, of spectrum. So people are atheists, people are agnostic, people uh, create a spiritual discipline that's outside of an organized religion, or maybe they return to some form of um, their faith tradition, but maybe it looks, it looks different, the community looks different. But whatever that is, we all need meaning making in our life. So the cultivation of what that meaning making system is for us is really a critical part of the full sort of return to a place of wholeness again for people. I hear a movement to what you're saying that can that's applicable and and I think it's important for people to remember that people are going to need to focus on different things at different times and focusing on me is not a negatively selfish thing mm-hmm. especially at certain times that's the most loving and uh, selfless <laughs> whatever you want to use the words thing would to actually be like pay attention to what your own heart is saying and that's that's how you can become loving and fully alive and keep moving forward. Well, yeah, there's this metaphor of um, the oxygen mask, right? So as a plane's going down, to be able to help someone else, you have to put on your own oxygen mask first. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to assist the person next to you. So this idea that our healing process is necessary for whatever it is we're going to do in the world to serve anyone else at a point further. I mean, you think about that kind of oxygen mask idea, which, by the way, I would put my mask on and take three or four deep breaths to verify the oxygen supply <laughs> before turning with great assurance, knowing I could help people for at least 15 minutes. Now that my oxygen supply is secured, I would make sure anyone within arm's reach was good to go. But, you know, it's, that idea was really hard for me at first um, when I left my Baptist faith of my youth you know, when I got to the lotus and the mud in uh, in your book, Teresa, I felt like you were like spying on me. <laughs> I mean, it was creepy. Yeah, I think a lot of people will identify with those steps. Could we actually list them out? I know it won't really do justice to all that is in the book, but at least it will be a good teaser for people. Step one, recognize the hurt inconsistencies or wrongdoing in your faith system or with the persons within your faith system. 
Step two, begin to question. Step three, seek outside input. Step four, leave your spiritual home and or faith of origin. Step five, begin your own pilgrimage into the spiritual desert, or as I called it, my spiritual runaway phase. Step six, enter the anger stage of grief and loss, which can also be accompanied with some kind of spiritual or philosophical nihilism. Step seven, explore other ideas, beliefs, and opportunities. Step eight, begin to reintegrate meaning, values, and beliefs in some way for yourself whether that is a mix of different ideas, philosophies, and belief systems, or whether it is by joining a new community group or tradition. Step nine, begin to trust in individual and communal relationships again. Step 10, move toward a non-dual consciousness or the middle way and away from absolutes. Step 11, enlightenment. Game over. You win. (laughs) One thing I loved that you talked about was the way that there's this progression of moves, basically including a a period of exile. It's like right in, in the path you laid out. But then I also love that you pointed out that in this process there can always be a wild card. There can always be things that happen as you're healing that hurt you again. And that may push you back to previous points in the process. And I I don't know how universal this this process is. I know it is certainly with 100% accuracy described (laughs) my spiritual journey over the last few years. Um, but I, I was just curious, like where, where you came up with that guide and how you talk people through uh, a, a new trauma at while they're in the process of healing. You know, obviously steps and stages and processes always have, there's always anomalies. Not everything always fits everyone perfectly, but this seemed to encompass the most constant process that I saw people go through. And also kind of what my aspiration was for how people could continue to move through a healing process as they went forward. And then the issue with the that whole wild card is that, I mean, just like anything in life, we are working our way towards something and pain erupts back through into our lives. And that shows up in so many different ways. You know, it can be, again, it can be in like the formation of an unhealthy relationship that shows up and mimics the pain and the suffering that came out of that community. It can be, you know, public shaming around the process that the person is going through from that old context or old relationships, things that are reminiscent of the old world and that old life can pop up in in surprising ways for people. I think for for people to be able to know, one, that that's not a failure, 
in the process, I think, for trauma healing as a whole. It's not a failure to be triggered by things. You, people can be triggered by things. You know, even in my own trauma, having healed from my PTSD, it doesn't mean that there aren't moments in my life where something will trigger old memories and reminders. And I still have to go through my own process to kind of recalibrate and settle. Because often harmful religious systems are built on a process of shaming. I really wanted to create a way for people to see their way through it and also not to feel shame or blame for themselves when they fall down again, because that's just something that's going to happen. And then you just work from wherever you are. So it may be, let me remember to breathe today. Let me remember to pause and know that I'm safe in this moment. Let me remember, you know, something that I love and go and do that to take care of myself. As I was growing up and as I was trying to heal from these spiritual wounds, I had to separate this notion of being abused from this notion of, uh, of God. Um, I think that's another really difficult thing when we take these, these certain epistles that talk about Jesus being the head of the church and fathers being the head of the household uh, it, it ties that that closely into patriarchy. And so for me, I had to begin to unravel that. You know, I had to unravel God from the abuse that happened to us. I had to unravel this idea of patriarchy as being a, a God-ordained notion. And I had to understand God a lot differently. Yeah, I mean, even in the uh, in the Old Testament, I mean, there's so many passages about God disciplining those or correcting those that He loves or who He delights, or the the importance of God's judgment um, among His chosen people. The biblical narrative is is full of that kind of imagery and language. The rod of correction. The rod of yeah, exactly. And I've just talked to so many people who uh, they start to have a conversation with me about, you know, doubt in God or doubting their faith. And as you start to ask more questions, uh, they'll almost mention as an aside that they've had, you know, some really traumatic uh, experience with their fathers yeah. uh, or or if not their father, then some very significant mentor and because of the way the patriarchal influence on church culture that that figure is is overwhelmingly likely to be a man uh, at least among the people i've talked to and it's so interesting how we tend to not connect that linkage uh and and just say well i'm just having these doubts as opposed to realizing there's actually a much deeper more significant emotional loss or hurt at play in the situation. My my father was an engineer, and so if I wanted to borrow the car, I had to talk to him in graphs. You know, I had to explain everything with a number and statistics and graphs and data. Um, and 
and that's how he understood things. And I think there are just certain people who are wired in a certain way. And for me, the spiritual life was how I was wired. An early rem- memory for me was when I was in my bedroom and I began to hear my parents down the hall and I began to hear their voices rising and I was kind of standing at the, the edge of my bedroom trying to hear if, if there was any dishes being thrown yet or, or what was going on. And I remember being completely scared and trying to figure out exactly how I was going to get out of there. Um, I was too young to move in with a friend. I was scared of the child protection services, that they would take me away from home uh, if if I called them. I was scared my neighbor would call child protective services. I had gone to the church for help. I had told them what was going on. They told me that my father was the head of the house and that I just needed to mm. bear through the abuse. Ugh. Yeah, it ha- that happens a lot. So there I was in my room, and um, I just remember sitting on my bed completely freaked out because I felt like there was no way out. And yet I was able to kind of breathe in this peace and I sensed God surrounding me. There was just something that happened in that moment. It was very palpable, a very kind of palpable experience. My body just settled and I became aware of God surrounding me. And I realized that, you know, the only way out of this situation was to have the courage that I was able to find through religion. There are certain people who look at the world and they can't imagine looking at it without a paintbrush. And there are certain people who look at the world and they can't imagine looking at it without numbers. And there are certain people who look at the world and see science all around. I'm just one of those people who see it through a spiritual lens. And I tried to get away from it, but it just kept drawing me back. What would you say to someone who last week or last month has been told you just need to submit to this person's authority uh, because they're the head of the household who's in an abusive situation? One out of every four women in our country faces domestic violence. And so it's extremely important for pastors and for theologians to think about how our theology affects that, um, how it's playing into that. And I think if I'm talking, when I am talking to women who are facing domestic violence situations and when they've been told by the church that they need to stay in them, the church is just wrong. That's 
just not what God wants for them. These myths of domestic violence within the church, like if the woman would just be nicer, or if the woman would just submit, if the woman would just behave, then uh, the husband wouldn't be so abusive. Uh, That's just one. Um, And oftentimes we're told that within the church, especially in churches that believe in this authoritarian role of the husband, well, if you would just submit, then he wouldn't get so violent. And that's just not true. (laughs) So I would hopefully be able to walk alongside her, tell her that that's not what God wants for her. Domestic violence happens to people across the board, um, no matter what sort of religion or non-religion they're a part of. But people who are able to get out of domestic violence situations are typically people who have a community that surrounds them, a loving community that surrounds them. So if they're not able to leave that situation, I would encourage them to find a community that can surround them with love and a community that's more healthy. There are many ways in which we can be trapped into an abusive situations when it comes to the church or when it comes to our religion. Oftentimes people are trapped um, not being able to embrace their sexual orientation. Oftentimes people are trapped because they feel lesser than because they're women. Um, Sometimes people are trapped in difficult situations in marriages because they feel like the man should have authority over them. If you're in a situation where you feel trapped in this sort of abusive relationship, I I just want to say to you that God loves you, that God has made you in the image of God, that you are powerful, that you are beautiful, and that you have everything within you to be able to leave that sort of abusive relationship. And I encourage you to find a healthy group of people that will remind you on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis that God loves you from the bottom of your toes to the top of your head. And God wants you to be loved fully holy, and beautifully held by God. If you enjoy the Liturgist podcast but would like to go deeper, if you'd like to learn more and talk to others going through a journey in appreciating the world equally through science, through art, and through faith, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to this program on Patreon. Patreon is a site designed for people to raise monthly support through donations, Uh, but we've actually kind of moved away from the donation model and instead created additional content available for a very affordable subscription of $5 a month. So, of course, 
we'll take any amount of money as a donation. If you want to give one or two or three dollars a month, that's fine. And if you do that, you'll get access to a second podcast called The Liturgist Conversations, which is a behind-the-scenes look at how The Liturgist podcast is produced. But for people who subscribe at $5 a month, we create weekly meditations uh, to help you deepen your spiritual practice. And sometimes we do a series of daily meditations. The next one will be launching in just a couple of weeks. That will be an Ignatian spiritual exercise formation. Uh, That'll be two continuous weeks of daily meditations. Uh, So that's available to you. And in conjunction with this episode, we're actually releasing the full unedited interviews for every conversation that has appeared on this episode at the $5 level on Patreon. And of course, some people uh, also subscribe at the $20 a month tier, which probably for right now gets back in that donation mindset. Uh, But we do have some additional uh, time to talk and discuss things about the program with people at the $20 level uh, and occasionally some in-person meetups as well. So if you're interested in learning more about subscribing to the additional resources we make available to our patrons, simply go to theliturgist.com and click on the Join Us button in the upper right-hand corner to find out more. Chapter 3, Creating Safe Spiritual Space for Others. Let's go back to our conversation with Teresa. You had this great, great segment towards the, the back third of the book about... How to identify false gurus versus like genuine wisdom teachers. I went through a period where I came back to some appreciation of the divine on the other side of, of a very, very steep nihilism. And I was incredibly skeptical of absolutely anyone who taught about spiritual belief and practice. I didn't discriminate to me, literally anyone. Um, I just thought was was a charlatan if they were talking about spiritual practice, even after I'd had this very powerful uh, divine experience. And so you you actually lower the stakes a little bit by throwing out some warning signs to look out for in f- false gurus, people who are maybe out for ego validation or financial gain as opposed to helping other people along their journey. And I wonder if you might share some of those with us. Sure. And and I preface this by saying it felt really important to off pe- offer people a guide because of how often people would leave unhealthy systems without kind of like leaving an unhealthy family system without knowing what a healthy parent looks like. And so they, um, they will end up either, like you said, totally mm. avoiding relationality or, or sometimes spaces that could be helpful also very often will end up finding another kind of false community, uh, you know, led by a false teacher that will harm them again, because you don't always have that inner discernment available yet as you're going through your own healing process. So, I mean, you named some of them. One is, you know, uh, what are they charging, you know, for their spiritual services, right? So I understand people do workshops and, and retreats and and there's, there's space for the economics that is necessary, but what are they actually asking from you? What are they taking from you? Also, what are they requiring of you? So do you get to retain who you are as a person? Are they asking you to give up those things? Are they crossing boundaries in terms of um, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries? 
boundaries, invading in your life in ways that are unhealthy? Are they people that really are all about being on the stage or at the front of the room? I mean, one of the examples I give is a yoga teacher, you know, so it's not necessarily like a megachurch situation. It's just, it's really anyone that really is in love with the idea of being center stage in front of everyone, offering spiritual platitudes when you get down to the root of it are often very simplistic and and not and don't offer people a sense of spiritual development or transformation that happens within themselves it's very much centered around them being in the spotlight and having the focal point on them and and focusing on whatever they say as as the primary function of the way that everything works in that community in that context in that spirituality Yeah. So, I mean, those are just a handful of things, but I I really think it's important for people to be able to start to cultivate that inner discernment of when somebody is healthy, that's a teacher. And there are, and I, so the opposite of the false guru, I call the wisdom teachers. So there are people out there that are, that are intentionally trying to offer people space and place to grow inside of themselves that aren't trying to take from them too much or take their identity or force them on a very specific path that's of this teacher's own making. There are good teachers out there, and I also highlight how to find those. I, I just was I was in some Twitter banter uh, last night and or this morning about the idea of spiritual authority. You know, my my take is that those two words don't go together very well. <laughs> spiritual authority, um, because I think when when authoritarianism gets involved. And religion, it's sort of the carrot and the stick. It's this very powerful cocktail of manipulation that people can use to control others to whatever ends. And I don't know, when you see Jesus or any of the real great spiritual teachers, in my opinion, uh, you don't see people that exercise authority over other people. If anything, When you see Jesus, it talks about him emptying himself of power and serving, the servant of all. How do you see the idea of authority? And and is that kind of a word that when you're counseling people or talking to people about their spiritual communities and and journeys, is that sort of a red flag word for you? Or how, how do you see that word and concept playing into healthy spiritual development? Yeah, I think I definitely, I agree. I think authority and spirituality, which usually is authority and religion, but can be in other spaces too, is dangerous for the the evolution of the spiritual self. I mean, because if there's an external authority that's equally human to you, that is over your own spiritual process, then that's not really, that doesn't really allow for the transformation of the self. And it also usually creates and builds these unhealthy religious hierarchical systems. Because if you have authority, just like any system that has authority, then you have to build in all of these levels of hierarchy and, and who has what level of authority over community and over persons. And so the more authority is a focal point, often the more systematic communities become, the more all-encompassing the power of one or a handful of small individuals, it becomes very toxic very quickly. And that's also where real violations and abuses go um, unspoken, unseen, silenced because of those systems of power become can become so abusive so quickly. And I just think there's a danger in general for the idea that ultimate authority in our own spiritual process in this world, you know, that 
that humans with fallibility, reading texts written by humans with fallibility, are then making determinants about absolutes, that that is always dangerous. And so mm-hmm. I do think that in many ways that's kind of an oxymoron. You know, spiritual authority is an oxymoron. And it's especially dangerous for people that have been through spiritual trauma because the greatest necessity is to be able to have autonomy over over your spiritual journey, that, that real teachers are able to guide and support and companion people and offer new information or new perspectives on information that allow people to open and go deeper in their own spiritual process, that that's really, that's the guidance of a real teacher. And really what the word guru is meant to be is a companioning mentor that helps support you through your own process, but not take over the process. And so to me, anything that that um, highlights authority is trying to take over your spiritual process. I started ministry when I was still in my 20s. And so I'm like a 20-something pastor thinking, oh, yeah, like I've really got all the power. And, you know, I I never imagined myself in the way (laughs) that they would always present it. Like, you know, here's this person and people will let you do whatever you want. And I thought, oh, please. But sometimes it's just hard to, to remember that, some people, not everybody, does think of you in in these very powerful positions. And that's really difficult to to realize because, you know, on the day-to-day basis, most people don't really care if I'm a pastor. They think it's it's a little bit odd. But there are certain people who really see the pastor as a representation of God. So just keeping that in mind and realizing that um, uh, we can't be God, certainly, there's no way to do that, but we might have some, or people might be attaching some uh, power or significance to us that we don't understand and we can't grasp. So always be aware of that, but also as the person who may be hurt, you know, realizing that the the pastor or the priest or the youth group leader is horribly human. And if we can begin to really separate that person from who God is, you know, just as I had to do that with my father. Uh, That's an extremely important part of being able to heal those wounds. Oftentimes, I'll hear church leaders who will respond to someone who has said, well, I've been abused, or I've been hurt, or I've been wounded by the church— they often get very defensive of the institution or the church, and quickly they begin to say either, well, I'm sure it didn't really happen that way, or uh, they start gaslighting the victim. You know, mm. we just can't do that as spiritual leaders. We have to take responsibility for the harm that's been caused, to be able to say, I'm sorry, and to be able to listen to that story and bless that person in their pain and their frustration and 
and be able to help reconcile and forgive each other. I think that issue about that you talked about with people on the pedestal is is an insightful one because, you know, I, I grew up in circles where, yeah, usually the man of God mm-hmm. um, was sort of this really lofty figure and was supposed to be the example for everybody spiritually. And so when they would crash and burn, which most of them inevitably do at some point, seems like, um, in the world I grew up in, it was usually, it's like the sexual sins that are the ones that are the unforgivable right? for the church. And because of that, it forces this strange, lofty view that hurts so bad. It hurts people so bad when we find out they're human beings with genitals and sex drives and and issues and whatever. Right. I think how we treat people when they fall and when they fail has something to do with what will happen in the future as well. I think you create this system. Like I remember, you know, a big, a big church leader that I knew personally that had fallen. He had this big controversy that happened with meth and gay prostitution massages or something. It like, it was just devastating to all the people at the church. So many people, it was just this such painful thing. And I was just like, why did he have to be so in the closet with who he was and what he was going through that it had to get to like the full on prostitution and meth scene? It's It had to just f- like fester in this closet of you can't acknowledge who you are and what's going on in your life really during the whole process of ministry because you're on the, on the pedestal and then it just creates this further and further divide. And then it all crashes and burns and everybody gets hurt. And I just, I wonder like if we can find ways of when people fall from their ideals and from our ideals of them, how we treat them and how we interact with the whole scenario of what happened. It's, it's important for that moment for that particular person But I think it also is important for moving into the future of next time if a person feels a certain way or they're having issues and having problems in their marriage, having problems with whatever, are we creating an environment where they can be human beings? Do we have churches and and structures and authorities, systems of all the way people that make the rules, what we expect of people that allow human beings to have these positions? And I think how we react to people when we find out they're human beings are some of the most important times of what happens for the future of, of people that go through similar situations. And I don't know, I've just seen that so much where you create this double life. I was in Christian music for a long time and I see the, the people that they all live one way behind the camera. And then once the Instagram photos come out, like everybody put away the glass of wine, everybody pretend <laughs> you're something else. And and it creates this sort of double life, and then that builds and builds and builds, and then you have this idea of the men and women of God, and then when you peek behind the curtain, it all comes crashing down and everybody's hurt. So I just wonder what we can do before it all comes crashing down <laughs> to sort of minimize that divide and accept the humanity of our leaders. Yeah, it's so sad, isn't it? It's just such a sad story. I remember when I first started as a minister, and I would hear about some sort of sex scandal that would happen. 
And I was like, oh, I got to hear all the details. You know, I wanted all the gossip. I wanted to hear exactly what happened. And then about the third time it happened, I was just like, oh, no, not again. Because it's the details are always different, but it always seems to be the same story, you know. And, and all of a sudden, you begin to realize how tragic it is for everyone involved. And so I guess just having compassion, you know, having compassion on our church leaders, realizing they're not perfect, um, having compassion when they slip up, and having compassion on, you know, these these double lives, it, it just makes me sad. I mean, there, there is a certain sort of occupation patient mask that you have to put on because you're a professional. But at the same time, you know, having to hide as you come out of the liquor store or whatever, it, it's just really, really sad. There's a beautiful book called The Hidden Wholeness. Is it Parker Palmer wrote about it and talking about these masks that we wear. And it just seems like every minister or church leader needs to read that because we are constantly lured into becoming somebody we're not and lying for a crowd or lying for an audience or even lying for a congregation. And I think we deserve better. And so that's sort of a relationship that that both of us have to go into, pastors and congregations, um, congregations need to realize that ministers are going to make mistakes. We're not going to have perfect credit scores. We're going to uh, curse on on social media every once in a while, and we're just going to mess up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there needs to be a little leeway in that situation. But also, you know, pastors need to be real. We don't need to be lying to people about what we believe and who we are. And I don't mean to, um, you know, particularly someone who's like had to stay in the closet for the last couple decades or something like that. I don't mean to make light or, or, you know, make this sound like it's a trivial thing that you're just lying. But what I am trying to say is, can we create healthier communities where we're more honest with one another, both about our um, desires and our hopes and our dreams and also about the times when we just mess up. I mean, I know that in my work, I travel all the time. I'm on stage all the time. And people have this image that I have it together. But when I travel and I get on the road, open up Yelp, I look at places I know I shouldn't be looking. And the next thing I know, I've got a slice of pepperoni pizza. And sometimes I'll go from one airport concourse to another and i'll get pizza in both concourses <laughs> and uh you know it, it's it's you're afraid to admit that you have this problem but i mean it's hot cheese what are you gonna do it's a problem it's a problem <laughs> i mean that 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 is a real story though i literally recently on a trip got uh, got a pizza two different concourses. We accept you, Mike. We don't judge you. <laughs> we love you and God well, loves we should, you. <laughs> we should come up with a restoration plan. For, yeah. for <laughs> I think so. I think so. 
Isn't it weird? Like, that's what people... You don't need a restoration plan unless it's sexual. Like, if somebody's like, yeah, I've been too gluttonous. We laugh. We say, like, okay, let's just... Look, cool, let's just get you... Stop the podcast for a couple months. We're going to get you restored. <laughs> it is It is interesting how we, we, we really do stigmatize certain behaviors more than others. And I've seen some research that says the social response to a traumatic mm-hmm. event helps shape the way an individual perceives that event as trauma. So in some ways, the stigma we place around sexuality can actually cause the trauma of victim experiences to be even deeper and even more dramatic. That's not unique to sex and sexuality. We see that in victims of domestic abuse who feel like it's their fault. You know, if you've had that narrative, well, if you would just submit, this wouldn't mm-hmm. be a problem. And so now the person the person is double traumatized. They're traumatized by the event and then by the social response. We, we have to move past that in every church, in every denomination, in every gathering of people. It's not reflective of a God who loves. It's not reflective of a people seeking to serve others or be like Christ. It's uh, shame and it's domination and it's controlling and it has to stop. All right, let's get back to Hillary. Any space that's creating any sort of sense of belonging and any sort of social fabric, it's involving human beings, which means there's going to be some casualties of, of war just with human beings being together, you know? Yeah. But how do you create a space as, as leaders and dreamers and organizers of spaces, of yeah. communal spaces and spiritual spaces that is less likely to create trauma and that is a safer space mm-hmm. for people to be able to process and walk through pain and confusion and all the things that can quickly pe- put people on the outs. How can you create an environment and a culture and a leadership that minimizes trauma? Yeah, that's such an important question. My understanding of that would be informed by a, a phrase that a clinical instructor of mine, a, a trauma therapist who trained me, something he said in my training, which was that hurt people hurt people. And it's out of our hurt and whether our hurt is something that we're aware of or not, uh, something that was done to us, something that we continue to perpetuate in our life or other people's lives. But, but my understanding is that when people are healthy and well, that they'll be They'll be bumping up against other people, but that we'll be able to resolve it well and take responsibility. So I think people in leadership need to take ownership of their own hurt and do investigations into what is causing their hurt and and perhaps where their blind spots are and encourage people that they are leading to do the same and to be able to have a conversation with vulnerability and authenticity about the essential nature of taking responsibility of our hurt and how that might impact other people. 
being trauma-informed is a really important component. So looking for what systems do to cultivate trauma or then to create silence around trauma or stigma around it and having open conversations that are informed about what happens when we're hurt and what kinds of things we do. Think people who don't understand trauma might take a person's trauma response personally. Oh, you were over at my house and then you just had to leave. You got all upset and then you left and you don't care about me. And perhaps we may understand through a trauma lens that, wow, maybe that person was triggered by what we were watching on TV and the fact that they got up and left wasn't about me. That was about something that was so overwhelming for them that their body actually moved them out of our, the space that we were in together. So being trauma-informed, taking responsibility for hurt and modeling that in a position of leadership. Uh, a church that I'm attending right now, the pastor is incredible at this. Uh, he regularly stands at the front of the congregation and apologizes for things that he did wrong that might have hurt people. And to have a person in leadership model taking responsibility for how he's hurt other people impacts hmm. the culture of taking responsibility and has said to that congregation, we are a group of people who care more about understanding and creating safety than about protecting our egos. Wow. Hmm. I heard this liturgy that the Eastern Orthodox Church does mm -hmm. once a year, where everybody, everybody in the congregation goes to everybody mm. and repents and offers forgiveness, hmm. just like including the priest and everybody wow. kind of goes around and offers mercy and shalom to everybody. And I'm sorry if I've done anything to, you know, like as sort of part of the liturgy, mm -hmm. I always thought that was pretty profound. That's beautiful. Having something like that where just forgiveness and acknowledgement that we all will create pain for each other and trying to make it right as just kind of part of the fabric of, of the community itself. I think there's something really beautiful about that. This is something that I, I take quite seriously, um, especially in my work with couples around sex and sex therapy. But Martin Buber's idea of I, thou, and I, it... Uh, Martin Buber was a phenomenologist and existential philosopher who, who spoke about our relationships with other people and how that is central to the existence of us as humans and to our felt experience of being human. And he divided the experience of being human into two modes, if you will. There would be I-it and I-thou. And I-it I, is about us interacting with other people in such a way that they become objects or it's to us. Uh, people or things that we just use for our satisfaction, uh, for our sense of gratification or to get our needs met. So I could be using a friend of mine as an it if I'm constantly just asking her to, to be the sounding board without ever really thinking about how my response or how my disclosures affect her. Or we could treat the earth as an it, this this thing that just kind of provides us land where we can drive our cars and get oil and litter, instead of treating other people and, and things and the earth and nature and animals like I-thou. And I-thou would be Buber's concept of 
of connection, of spiritual connection, of seeing the fullness and the wholeness of the other person and, and advocating for that and fostering that and relating to a person as if they were a spiritual being, not unsimilar to the light in me recognizes the light in you, acknowledging that every interaction isn't just this thing that we can use to get our needs met, but is a space that we enter into as a way of, of existing together. And Buber would say that that I-thou is, is the relationship we have with those around us, which points at the ultimate I-thou, which is the experience of relationship and of being fully seen and known and experiencing of something bigger than us, of God. So I think we, we create problems in our life when our interactions with our environment and with those around us become restricted to I, it, including people who are, are suffering. How can we just use, oh, someone's going to listen, okay, I'm going to tell them everything about us without assessing, is this an appropriate time? Is this or something? Is there something that maybe isn't safe for the other person about me telling them about my trauma? I would, to integrate what we've been talking about today would be to say our ability to do I it or I thou and how we can be self-aware enough to notice which of those modes of interaction we're in, we might lose that awareness when we're activated sufficiently that our, our body brain system has said, just do it, just go, it's happening again. So people who are in their trauma and reenacting their trauma might lose the ability to be I thou and might consequently do I, it, without even knowing it. But I think that to create healthy communities, we need to foster I-thou relationships with people. The inconvenient thing about I-thou relationships is that they take time, and they take presence, and they take authenticity and vulnerability, and actually existing in that beautiful and magical and often kind of confusing space of, of really just being being with people and appreciating worth and value in the things around us. So there are barriers to I, thou, and trauma response might be one of them, but I wonder about how it would impact our communities if we modeled I, thou, and if we encouraged I, thou, and that I, thou is being symbolic of, of our spirituality and our relationship and experience and feelings about God. I feel like uh, you just you just gave me a lot of uh, synthesis. Hmm. Uh, wow! I mean, holy cow! And I don't mean that in an I it that way. Uh, <laughs> nice, yeah. But man, can I can I keep going for a minute? Please, yes. I think that when ultimately when we're when we are creating trauma in another person's life, there's an inevitability of us creating an I it relationship with them. I mean, rape is a prime example of that, where we know that it's not about mutually satisfying and fulfilling sexual encounters. It's about someone using the other person in an act of power and control. If trauma is related to I, it, and treating the world and treating other people like it's that we can use for our gratification and pleasure or emotional release or whatever it is, then I believe that there can be something healing and restorative in the I-thou. In seeing a person, in helping a person feel human again, in validating their value, their essence, that they matter. And in therapy, ultimately what I believe is, yes, the advanced clinical training I have in specific therapeutic interventions, that's all good and well, but if I don't do that with an I-thou, 
at the heart of my relationship with the person that I'm supporting, then I could be just perpetuating the trauma, including wanting people to perform healing. If, if I feel like my worth is tied up in a person's symptom reduction, then they become an I-it to me. And it doesn't free them into being wherever they're at in their journey of healing. So we as a community can create an I-it with somebody by wanting their, their trauma healing to exist on a timeline which dehumanizes them, which minimizes what they need in order to heal from the trauma. So part of creating a culture, a community, a therapeutic relationship, which is healing, I think is built on the foundation of I-thou relationship. I see you. You're not alone. You matter here. Your voice matters here. You are valuable, even if I don't agree with you, even if this goes differently than I want it to, that I'm in control of my own affect and my own identity enough that I'm okay with you being you, even if that means that you're going to be hurting for a very long time. You're free to be hurting for a long time if you need to, because I'm not going to further traumatize you by demanding that you heal in a way that's convenient for me. A phrase that one of my clinical supervisors uses a lot, um, and for those therapists who listen to this, they might recognize this as a signature phrase from the AEDP, but the key phrase is about undoing aloneness that therapy is about undoing aloneness it's about undoing the powerlessness and about undoing the confusion of the trauma giving people power back giving people value back and helping them feel in the context of relationship that they matter that they're seen that they're known and that the trauma is over I hate to do this to you, but I have talked to some of my absolute heroes in the world of science and in the world of the spiritual as part of co-hosting this podcast. But this was by far my favorite conversation we have ever had. Thank you for taking so much time to talk to us today. Oh, um, wow, my heart feels um, There was not yeah, a warm. minute that wasn't illuminating in this entire segment. <laughs> I feel uh, I feel touched hearing you say that, that that is um, I really, really, really respect the work that the two of you do and I feel like you're doing something incredibly significant and I want to encourage you and, and I just I feel really touched. Um, yeah, my body feels warm just listening to, to you say that, Mike. It's, um, <laughs> it's it's very, very special to join together with people who have passion to see people heal and to know that we do it differently, but we're all on this journey of helping to see restoration in people's lives. It's very powerful mm. what, what the two of you are doing. Well, thank you so much, Hillary. This really was amazing. Wow. So fun. Thank you for, for yeah, I think it's gonna help a lot of people. listening. I really appreciate uh, the work that you guys are doing. We hope this episode on spiritual trauma has been enlightening and helpful. If you'd like to see additional resources for processing or coping with trauma, or if you'd like to join in a conversation about this episode with other listeners, visit theliturgist.com slash podcast and find the episode on spiritual trauma. 
You can connect with us on Twitter at The Liturgists or on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Liturgists. We'd like to thank Greg Nordine, Corey Pig, and Madison Chandler for their contributions in helping produce this episode. Thanks to Derek Walker for some graphic design. The music you heard on this episode was Gunger and On Earth, which is Tyler Chester and I. Michael Gunger and I, Science Mike, have been your hosts. And of course, as always, thanks so much to our patrons who make this show possible. So much love to every one of you. Thanks for listening, everyone. 